This is Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. Hello and welcome to Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. I'm Madeleine Vaughan. And I'm Jules Ironside. This week, mysterious packages and mystical cups. MacGuffins, plot devices, and picky weapons in speculative fiction. Ah, MacGuffins. <laughs> uh, it's weird. It's one of those terms where I'd sort of heard it and not really attributed any importance to it. And then when you actually look into to kind of what's what it involves and what it describes, it's like, oh, that's, that's quite interesting. Yeah, it does deserve its own name kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. It's It's funny, though, because... I guess the word itself, just the way that it sounds and, and some of the context that it's used in, um, whenever you kind of, of, well, for me personally, whenever I heard of sort of MacGuffin and stuff like that, I always sort of read it as kind of like an insult. And it's not. Yeah. It, it, it's just like, oh, well, like, there we go. We've got the MacGuffin. It always felt like someone was accusing someone else of lazy storytelling or... or you know that it was something that no one actually cared about it was it was convenient it was a bit of a deus ex machina kind of thing and that's not it at all it is a device and um no i mean it's the same with plot devices the number of reviews i've read where someone hasn't liked the direction a plot has taken yeah and has gone can you say plot device and it's like how would you get a plot to move without plot devices yeah So I'm like le- legitimately stumped on this one. What do your plots just flow along? And yeah. that nothing ever changes. Is, is that what your life is like? Because seriously, every time I hit traffic lights at the wrong time, it's kind of like, ah, plot device. <laughs> exactly. Yes. So, yeah. When when you sort of said, well, let's do an episode about MacGuffins, um, I was like, really? And then I kind of looked up and looked into them a little bit more and did a little bit more research and things like that. And I mean, I always knew sort of vaguely what they were, but I didn't I didn't actually realize actually, you know, the 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 history of it, what what it, it, it they're used for and, and things like that. So so I mean, I've got to ask you, Jules. Where did this come from? Why did you suddenly one day wake up, sit up in bed and just go, MacGuffins! And, and yes, decide that, that... that... Is that what happened? <laughs> that's exactly what happened. That's where I get all my ideas. It's three <laughs> o'clock in the morning. I sit bolt up right in bed. Alan totally freaks out because he thinks I've heard a burglar. Um, wanders around naked with a club because that's kind of what he does. Um, just day to day. <laughs> yeah, this is a Tuesday for us. Uh, no, that's obviously not what happened at all. Um, I stumbled across the term a while back and thought, okay, I'm not, like you said, it's like a negative thing. Mm. And then I read a blog post by, uh, I'm sorry, I can't remember the name of the author. It it was a blog post on one of these fantasy critique type blog things. Mm -hmm. And then I also saw eventually the overly sarcastic productions video on it and i thought well yeah actually i kind of see your point you've all made excellent points mm. what i really want to do is now take that excellent point and compare it to something that's kind of been bugging me for a while which is the whole plot device thing yeah um so yes and and we are kind of talking by and large about objects mm. um we've obviously discussed magical objects or special swords or whatever before mm-hmm. and 
this is different because we're looking directly not at the object itself but how it impacts and drives hopefully a plot yeah absolutely so i guess the thing to kind of start us off with is that i'm sure that we've got a few listeners sort of leaning in to the you know to the speakers and being like now hold on a second jules madeline (laughs) what the hell is a macguffin yeah (laughs) uh so a little bit of history about what a macguffin is um alfred hitchcock that old bean once described a macguffin as the thing the spies are after but the audience doesn't care yeah (laughs) which i had heard before which was why i guess i sort of always thought of them thought of it as a as a lazy thing in the way that that's kind of the audience doesn't care well, um, yeah, you think you think kind of books by the yard, you think pulp, you think films that are just churned out as momentary popcorn entertainment. And the thing is, this this is going to be like, you know, this is a truth that's going to floor all the writers out there. Mm-hmm. Your audience doesn't have to care about every single facet in your book. <laughs> Not every single facet in your book needs to have monumental importance in its own backstory. Yeah, absolutely. If you do it right, you can have a few things that are there just because. Yeah. And nobody's ever, ever going to have thinking about them because that wasn't the point. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, obviously, you've got to make it believable. But, um, yes, but obviously, depending also what kind of thing you're writing, if it's complete satire, then, you know. <laughs> but we, we will talk about that as we, as we go on yeah. and how you can do that effectively. But basically... A MacGuffin is any highly desired item in a book or a film that doesn't actually do anything in terms of plot. So everybody chases after it, everybody wants it, mm-hmm. but even when they get hold of it, it never really does anything to the plot itself. Yeah. The whole point is the chase. Yeah, absolutely. And and usually kind of it is, it's achieved usually at the end, right, right at the end yeah um so i mean let's give some examples so the philosopher's stone in harry potter and the um and the philosopher's stone (laughs) i can't believe you stumbled on that (laughs) i I just suddenly went am i wait hold on a second (laughs) what's the book called again what was i talking about (laughs) no that is oh wow it's it's called the same thing sorry um (laughs) that is absolutely the perfect example um anyone who's got a vague interest in alchemy knows that the philosopher's stone is needed to create the elixir of life and you know it's all very metaphorical for this particular study of what was proto-chemistry back in the old days Mm -hmm. um and obviously rowling uses it to great effect in harry potter and the philosopher's stone everybody is after the philosopher's stone in that book and yet the philosopher's stone does bugger all it absolutely does bugger all yeah yeah. Um, another example is the Ark of the Covenant in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Though arguably it does do something when it's opened. It does do something, but it doesn't actually do anything that furthers the plot or advances the character arcs. It's kind of like a... No. It's, it's a cursed object as well as being a MacGuffin. But it's like everybody's after this thing. The Nazis are after the Ark of the Covenant, which turns out to be a really bad idea. Yeah, that's a terrible it, idea. <laughs> doesn't actually really do anything it's just a nasty twist on a MacGuffin yeah absolutely um it's the same with with the Holy Grail both actually the Holy Grail and both 
Well, actually, it does do something in Indiana Jones. But Well, I mean, if you talk about the Holy Grail in classic Arthurian myth, yeah. the actual Holy Grail doesn't do anything at all, really. There's yeah. all sorts of legends and folklore and stuff woven around it, as in it's death to touch it unprepared if you're not pure enough of heart. Yeah. Um, it's supposed to... Um, in later legends and things it's supposed to give you eternal life or heal any wound etc etc but in actual fact if you look at the legend it does nothing it's just a case of everybody goes looking for it and only one person gets it (laughs) and then they bugger off (laughs) thanks Galahad and uh, a personal favourite of mine from a film that I can no longer have as a favourite film (laughs) because it's so problematic but it's the roll of film that is hidden on the very, very badly reconstructed um, Brachiosaurus skeleton. <laughs> or maybe it's a Diplodocus. Um, in one of our dinosaurs is missing. So throughout the entire film, it seems like everyone's chasing this ruddy dinosaur skeleton when it's going around on the back of a truck and what have you. But it's actually mm-hmm. the roll of film concealed in the dinosaur skeleton spine. We never really see what is on that film. It's just really important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's perfect. Um, one thing to remember is that a MacGuffin can doesn't actually have to be an object. You can also have a person who's a MacGuffin. So a really, really good example of this is the baby Toby in Labyrinth. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, our, our antagonist is Jareth and our protagonist is Sarah. Sarah's trying to get her baby brother back. Um, and Toby actually, being a baby, does very little. Probably doesn't remember a lot of this later on, either. Yeah, or so any he of it. Never, <laughs> he never really affects the plot. It is entirely the quest to get him back or to retain him to become the Goblin King's you know, next in line. Yeah. Um, and if you've seen the film Willow, which is getting a little dated now, um, the baby in that Alora Dannon is being sought in a Herod-like fashion uh, by by the evil queen mm-hmm. and is being taken back to where she's supposed to be by the the halfling willow and um there's a bunch of other wacky characters on the way everybody's after this baby the baby actually does very little even though she's supposed to be some sort of mystical princess she doesn't really accomplish much because she's a baby <laughs> yeah absolutely um it's worth saying that you can have an object which everyone is seeking which still doesn't count as a macguffin. So for instance, I would argue that the one ring in Lord of the Rings is not a macguffin. Yeah. Everybody's fact, after we... it, but it it's it's not a macguffin because it does that it does actually kind of um it differs and and well we I'd say it was a, a not a plot device, but you know what I mean. Um, yeah, the One Ring's interesting, and we'll go into the One Ring a little bit later because it, it because it's a very specific. You, you'd think it would be a MacGuffin because everybody's chasing this ring, but actually, the ring has an agenda of its own. Yeah. So um, yeah, it's definitely worth going into that a little bit later when we're looking at um, choosy magical objects. Yes, absolutely. As well. Okay. Um, so, how do MacGuffins differ from plot devices? I hope that's the next question everybody sensibly arrived at. Yeah. <laughs> now, hold on. Sounds like you're talking about plot devices. We're not. So um, a plot device is an object or occasionally an animal or a person which forces the plot to pivot on its trajectory. Yeah. 
I mean, it can also be a circumstance as yeah, well, but largely, yeah, largely it is one of those things. It's something quite definite and it it literally shapes the plot. So instead of everybody chasing this particular thing, it's it's kind of like a, a bend in the road. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so it, it could still be a coveted object. Um, it can still, still people can still be wanting it. It can, people can still be chasing it, but it does have a purpose that will affect the outcome of the story itself. Yeah. So, for example, as we've said, the One Ring. Again, we'll go into it in a minute. Mm-hmm. Um, to some extent, sort of Excalibur. Yeah. Um, depending on which version of Arthurian myth you're going for there, and which adaptation, but the whole idea of the sword and the stone um, is very is very much a okay yes we're getting into choosy magical objects here as well but it is very much a plot device because it, it changes the trajectory of the plot yeah or the or, or certainly of young arthur's character arc um yeah you can also have it be a chekhov's gun type thing so a plot device can be something like a volcano at the start of the story which everyone hopes won't erupt or a dragon which everyone's like yeah let's hope that doesn't wake up and then about two thirds of the way of the story, when you get to the point where uh, everything's going to go a bit pear shaped, or at least it, that that's roughly where it should be if you're doing your structure correctly, <laughs> um, the dragon wakes up or the volcano erupts, etc. Um, if you take Samantha Shannon's The Priory of the Orange Tree, there is a very nasty dark dragon that has not quite managed to wait, wait, work its way free of the Earth's crust, and kind of again two thirds of the way through. The dragon gets free, and but it's mentioned at the very beginning and is very much a plot device. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. I mean, the hobbits, the hobbit, <laughs> hobbits, a really good example of this. Don't wake Smaug. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> oh yeah. So you know, you said don't wake Smaug. <laughs> um. Well, uh, little accident. <laughs> Small issue. Yes. So basically, in simple terms, a MacGuffin drives the plot only by being desired, only by being wanted or chased by the cast. Uh, a plot device directly affects the plot on its own merit, even if it's just an object or something inert but dangerous like a volcano. Yeah. Yeah. Um, whereas, you know, um, MacGuffins may have theoretical use, but that ability will never ultimately affect the plot. Yes. So, uh, Death Star plans, um, uh, unobtainium. <laughs> unobtainium is such a stupid name. It's really, really stupid. Um, <laughs> and I'm sorry, I do still like the film Avatar. Um, but yeah, unobtainium, which is a theoretical, actual scientific thing. Nobody's proven exists, but it's a theoretical model of something mm-hmm. and i thought they'd made it up and just come up with a really stupid name but no they, they've literally taken this from science um yeah so basically you've got things that can be i mean mcguffin could be conceivably exchanged for any object because it doesn't matter what it is it only matters that everyone wants it so for example in star wars yes it's the death star plans but you could change that to i don't know um weaknesses in Darth Vader's outfit or a different type of lightsaber plan which can easily fend off the dark side you you could change it to 
many many different things yeah and i mean if you have a series of something you know you could also have something which starts as a plot device or you know is very important that then becomes mcguffin i mean the avengers uh, the infinity stones in the in in endgame are MacGuffins, pretty much. They're pretty much MacGuffins in every single film they appear in, with the exception of in Doctor Strange, where the time stone is actually used. The other stones have theoretical uses, but don't really do very much. Well, you do see them being used a little bit. I mean, obviously, Loki uses the tas- Tesseract... Um, yeah but it's the tesseract it doesn't really it's not really the stones specifically doing something of its own it's very vague and you could say oh we could change basically the test is could you take something out and put something else in yes you could whereas with the time stone you literally couldn't change that for something else Mm. so i think it still it still comes under the title of MacGuffin. yeah but then but then you have you have vision yeah, but even so, a lot of vision, what makes vision vision comes from Tony Stark's engineering. Yeah. So, yeah, okay, it might power him, but it's not really doing anything other than that. So I think again, it's great. It's kind of... I think it's grey ground. But yes, I, I totally agree that um, there like, are MacGuffin elements. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, I think you could change that stone for like a, a, an energizer battery and the, the plot would still work just fine. It doesn't directly affect the plot. <laughs> energizer battery <laughs> uh, it was the first thing that popped into my head okay <laughs> hold on vision <laughs> i've got a double a here <laughs> hold on vision i'm just gonna raid the remote control <laughs> <laughs> amazing okay it works for the energizer bunny <laughs> and we all know that fucker doesn't stop <laughs> crossover um <laughs> confirmed yes. energizer bunny is now an adventure <laughs> okay so, yeah to summarize that part basically a MacGuffin is something that people want and it affects the plot by being wanted and the plot device will literally affect the plot directly by some inherent quality of whatever that object or person is yeah so how does this compare to choosy magical artifacts? <laughs> yes. Okay, so we've mentioned a couple of these. Um, CMA, choosy magical objects, now we shall abbreviate that to CMA, uh, may be MacGuffins initially. So they could start off as MacGuffins. MacGuffins. <laughs> Sounds filthy. <laughs> you made it so. Um they may also be plot devices, but they are basically, you know, they're going to be major pieces of the story in their own right, and they are almost always objects rather than anything living. So a choosy magical object often sets the hero on his or her or their path. So the typical classic boy handed a sword and a destiny trope right there. Yeah, definitely. Um, A choosy magical object affects the main character or other person holding it for good or ill, bringing out the best and worst in that person. So we were talking about the one ring. The one ring is the perfect example. Now, the one ring hasn't chosen Frodo to give him a destiny, but it is absolutely trying to get back to Sauron. 
in the same way it chose a sealed door because he was weak or weak he could be corrupted and then it chose um smeagol who became Gollum, uh, because again it was someone who was inherently venal and corruptible um yeah it, it, it's a really nasty choosy magical object everyone wants it even the people who are kind of like refusing to take it are refusing to take it because they know that they are corruptible mm. so people who already have experience of wielding power or holding a ring of power of their own so galadriel for example mm-hmm. and it's kind of like yeah i would take it wanting to do good and do terrible evil with it because i can conceive of power in a way that you simply can't it, it's why the one ring is entrusted to the hobbits because the hobbits are actually harder to corrupt than pretty much every other race. Wondering, <laughs> I will give you power. I will dinner, uh, d- d- but you can command armies. Dinner. What uh, about second breakfast? <laughs> <laughs> you do know about second breakfast. <laughs> so yeah, unless the one ring is going to co- cook them a six-course meal, but even then, it's kind of like um, the hobbits are very much. Because they're simple folk, there isn't very much for the ring to to act upon. Yeah, and you know, even Gowron said that you know that the fact that Frodo's come as far as he has with the ring, he's shown extraordinary resilience to its ability to pervert people's natures. Mm. Yeah, and let's be honest, Boromir doesn't do that well against it. No, he really doesn't. I mean, even Gandalf is like, I ain't touching that. A bad yeah. idea. Um, so, um, yeah, the One Ring has its own agenda, and mm-hmm. it is very definitely a choosy magical object of the most unpleasant kind. Yes, um, but the One Ring isn't the only one. We did also mention Excalibur. Um, uh, small nerdy bit here with me. Um, Excalibur is the sword from the lake, but it has now become the sword from the stone. Except the sword from the stone was actually Clarent. Yes. Um, because I'm a massive nerd. I think it also, has, to be honest, has been given other names as well, so that's not particularly helpful. Um, but yeah, it's why so many people are like, but wait, wasn't Excalibur given by the Lady of the Lake and the was the Sword and the Stone? No. Uh, they're two different swords. Regardless, Excalibur is kind of the one that's kind of been sort of... I guess because Excalibur is a cooler name. It's like, oh, yeah, behold the mighty sword Clarent. Um... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure what Clarent means, but Excalibur means cut steel, and we think it's supposed to refer to the fact of that the sword was made of a superior metal, possibly iron from a fallen star or a meteorite. Yeah, which is very, very cool. Um, so Excalibur, um, you know, it confers a badge of kingship to, um, well, in, in the old warlord sense. You know, in some cases it's an enchanted sword, Um but without it, Arthur never becomes king. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it's, again, it depends what myths and legends you're going from because there are so many centuries of layers on top of the myths where they've been modernised and um, changed for each audience mm-hmm. that it can be quite difficult to pick things apart. But but yeah, if we're talking in the old warlord sense, we're, we're looking back to sort of Celtic Britain. Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea that someone who was strong enough to wield a sword of that quality would be someone who armies would follow. Not necessarily someone who was physically strong enough, but someone who had the nouns, who had the sort of strategic understanding and 
possibly the people skills, let's be honest. Yeah, um, people skills definitely mattered. Yes. <laughs> um, so yeah, and at, at that point the sword becomes legendary in its own right and the whole idea of being able to draw the sword from the stone, well we've talked about possible historical anecdotes, but if we're looking purely in a sort of magical legend sense, the sword is very much choosing who is going to be the next king. I mean, yeah. it is kind of a ridiculous way of choosing who's going to be king, but <laughs> if you look at it purely from that sort of... Getting very Monty Python. <laughs> yes, yes, it is, really. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, you also have the uh, the Hallows and the Horcruxes in Harry Potter. Um, this is an interesting example... Let me try that again. <laughs> This is an interesting example because the Horcruxes start off as MacGuffins and they gradually attain um, choosing magical artifacts status. Um, or, yeah. Yeah, yeah, they do. Um, and you can say similar about the Hallows, really. Because mm. you think they're going to be MacGuffins and they turn out to actually be choosing magical artifacts in a slightly different way yeah and neither of them are great i mean both of them are kind of like they're the same sort of level as a fairy gift whereby if you misuse it even slightly it's going to really rebound on you and fuck things up yeah absolutely so, i mean in the so, end um, they, they affect harry by working on his natural ambition and understandable desire not to die um yeah definitely i think it's one of the most powerful parts of um Deathly Hallows is where Harry is is literally for about a third of the book struggling to choose between whether to go after the Horcruxes or the Hallows um, mm. because if he went after the Hallows theoretically they would make him master of death yeah and then he thinks he could face Voldemort by being a stronger wizard even though he knows that Voldemort is Voldemort's definitely a stronger wizard than Harry technically yeah. um, so there's that and in the end he makes the choice to put his trust in, in Dumbledore's plan and goes after the Horcruxes instead. Mm. Um, and obviously that pans out. But it is, even when he realises it's going to mean that, yeah, the intention is for him to die as well. Yeah. So, I don't know, there's a there's a truly heroic note in that story, in the sense of when you choose an unselfish path, when you choose... The love of your own kind over um, an evil organisation or evil institution to the point where you're willing to die for it mm. and it confers that same protection over the rest of them Yeah. so I mean I, I do find that really interesting they're very definitely they've got obviously choosing magical object status but also sort of plot device status because every time they find something like that it, it makes the plot swerve again yeah absolutely yeah uh you also have, you know, choosing magical artifacts that have a use beyond powering up a character. Yeah, they uh, they absolutely should have a, a use beyond just what they do <laughs> once they, they end up in the main character's hands. Yeah. Something we probably should have said at the beginning, but yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for example of this, you know, the Sword of Honour and She-Ra, um, you know, it, it, it functions to make her She-Ra, but it's actually also a sword. It functions yes. as an actual sword. <laughs> uh, I mean, Excalibur also functions as an actual sword, I should point yes. out. But uh, you know what I mean. And, you know, if you're one of those readers who are sat out there going, well, who writes a book with a sword that doesn't function as a sword? 
There are people. Um, Marion Zimmer Bradley, Elizabeth Ann Scarborough, Julian May wrote a trilogy together and there was the Sword of Peace in that, which is a really, really cool, neat idea. It was one of the Trillium. And basically, <laughs> this sword in Blood Trillium, it has no point and it has no edge. So it can kind of be used as a sword, but you can't kill anyone with it. Yeah. So it's literally just being used in a very symbolic fashion. So yes, a sword that doesn't work as a sword, but is a choosy magical object, supposedly. Mm-hmm. Um but it's actually really more of a MacGuffin, definitely is out there. Yeah, that does exist. Okay, so now that we've thoroughly established what a MacGuffin is and what it isn't, um, we should actually talk about how MacGuffins are actually used. Yeah, this is the part that obviously I'm really interested in because Mm. it's MacGuffins versus plot devices. Yeah. Um, but okay, starting off with one, um, the conflict caused by several different people all desiring this one object is great for driving a plot. And if you do that correctly, this is where you get to the point where nobody cares what what it is everyone's after. People only care who gets the object in the end. Yeah. And whether that is a satisfactory outcome. So it is literally sort of like, um, again, with with the philosopher's stone harry didn't want the philosopher's stone because he was hoping for eternal life he wanted to he wanted it for other reasons he wanted to stop someone else getting to it yeah absolutely so yeah this this huge conflict um in in pretty much anything in all the spy films where they're after files or film or you know a diamond from a heist or something no one actually really cares about the object yeah yeah, the object itself. I mean, and this is okay. So I should point out that we might care about the object, but in the hands of a certain someone. So, for example, you could have someone who says, oh, "I really," let's say, the MacGuffin is a baby. <laughs> you could you could care about the baby in so much as everybody else cares about the baby. But if if the plot if the plot was just if it was just a scene which was just filming the baby, it would be very boring because nothing <laughs> would be happening. Because it's just a baby. <laughs> imagining imagining the, the dance magic dance scene from yeah. Labyrinth where Toby's just there and just, there are no just, goblins and no, no goblins, goblin king. No, it's just, just Toby. Or, you know, like, okay, well, this is the diamond everyone wants. Let's just sort of film the diamond in the vault for hours. You know, that, that it would be incredibly boring. It's like, here is the moonstone in its casket locked away in the drawer. Like, <laughs> okay. Hooray! but <laughs> so where's you, the plot yeah so you can you can absolutely have it oh well i i must get hold of this diamond. this was my father's you know except so you could really you can empathize with the character really wanting it um and it might have very meaningful connotations for them and it might even be very emotional when the two are you know are joined like oh this is my son i must find my son i love my son kind of thing i mean there's uh, the Taken films that the, the kidnapped person <laughs> is kind yes. of a MacGuffin. <laughs> yeah, very much so. I mean, in the first one, his daughter's not really given very much personality or anything, is she? She's just kind of like, you're going to be taken. I need you to do X, Y and Z. And then that's it. Yeah. Gone. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's... um. <laughs> I mean, obviously, the audience doesn't want anything bad to happen to her. But if it was just, yeah, she's locked in a room and here you go, this is the film. It would it would be a very harrowing film, just her locked in a room, drugged. That would just be an incredibly harrowing film. 
but it would also be quite boring because nothing is happening. No, nothing, <laughs> is happening. nothing is happening. Yeah. Um, so yeah. <laughs> so conflict. Conflict is the is one of the main things a MacGuffin will do. Yes. Um, the next thing is uh, the MacGuffin will sometimes very handily power up the villain for a boss fight. Looking at yeah, you. <laughs> Looking at you, stones. <laughs> Yeah, the the infinity the stones infinity is stones, a, is a great one, um, and also the elder wand, the supposedly unbeatable wand in in Harry Potter again. Yeah, um, but yeah, and I mean, in fact, if you think of Guardians of the Galaxy with that first infinity stone, mm-hmm. when we realise what the infinity stones are, I can't even remember the name of the villain now. I just remember the the the, the dance off type suggestion. <laughs> <laughs> but they, you know, the fact the fact that basically it, the whole idea is the Guardians of the Galaxy are stronger when they all work together, and that's why they managed to hold an Infinity Stone. Although obviously later on you learn that he is the son of a god, so it's kind of a yeah. The reason you didn't get burned to ash by handling this stone was straight away, yeah, straight away. But yeah, it, that stone doesn't really do anything except power up the main antagonist in that film. Yeah, absolutely. Um. Other things that uh, MacGuffin can be used for. It makes conflict retroactively pointless. So I don't know if you're familiar with the old film, The Maltese Falcon. Yes. <laughs> where everyone is after this statue of a falcon and then it turns out to be completely worthless. So everything that went on before, all the conflict, all the struggle, all the killing. And it's kind of like, oh, it was all for nothing. So it's kind of like a type of Pyrrhic victory where you've won, you've got the object and then the object turns out to be an imitation so you know that the stamp with the with the um the, the rare stamp isn't worth anything the rare coin turns out to be brass what what have you mm-hmm. yeah absolutely um this is often used in comedy obviously yes yeah where you just have a group of people who are, who are doing their absolute best <laughs> and sometimes <laughs> their worst to achieve something and of course this has turned out to be an incredibly bad idea. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, you sometimes have the... Sometimes the, the, the MacGuffin itself is worthless, but the journey was enriching. Perhaps the real treasure was the friends we made along the way. <laughs> yeah, that's basically... It. And it sounds really cheesy when we say it like that, but yeah. actually that, that can be a very satisfying and fulfilling story. Particularly if you've got a bunch of people who are kind of like, yeah, we're going to team up to do this thing. Um, and our only goal is to get them. I mean, think Six of Crows. When they initially team up, it's kind of like most of us don't really like each other that much, yeah. allegedly. And they they fail the first time round. And then they have a mitigated success at the end. But largely what they've gone for isn't really worth as much as the sort of team they've built along the way or the losses they've suffered along the way yeah absolutely i mean it's also um i mean the road to el dorado the gold is actually kind of a bit of a macguffin yeah they want the gold everyone wants the gold and by the (laughs) end they lose all the gold (laughs) but they had a rollicking good adventure They they had a great time of it and they've got a new companion a new friend a new love interest it's very yes. poly relationship. <laughs> Don't at me. Um, 
No, it seems like that to me. I mean, I always kind of thought they were together anyway. Well, I think cause already. I think originally, yeah, that the, the implicate it was supposed, and they had to tone it down. But yes, I'm pretty sure that they were supposed to be a couple. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm just totally seeing seeing this as a poly relationship, and you can pry that out of my cold, dead, grabby raccoon hands. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, other things MacGuffins can do. Yeah. Okay. It- potentially can make a very scary weapon so it must be kept out of the wrong hands so my personal favorites are the rimbaldi devices and alias hmm. or sydney bristow is shipped all over the world against um kgb alternate you know kgb agents on the other side trying to keep these special devices from a, a da vinci type inventor out of people's hands in case they really can do what they can do um and it's it's tremendous fun, and sometimes she fails, sometimes she succeeds. But you kind of, even though the devices kind of look cool, you don't really care about what they can do, and they never really provide anything until the very end of the last season. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, it's also, <laughs> isn't it always the way that it's like they spend the entire plot saying we, we cannot allow this to get into our enemy's hands because if we do, it's end, it's end gate, you know, it's the end of time. And then it still gets into the enemy's hands and they somehow still manage to defeat the enemy. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great way of um, raising the stakes, isn't it? Yeah. So again, with like the Infinity Stones. Although, admittedly, with the first um, of the, you know, the Infinity War films, it was kind of like, okay, the stones got into his hand and half of all the populations everywhere in the universe are now gone. And if they don't exist. Yeah, they did actually lose. It was the first and, time you'd ever seen it where it's like, oh, well, some, you know, some gumption and teamwork didn't actually solve the issue. It's like sheer pluck did not actually win the day. And it was, I, I think I'm not alone. I think a lot of people came away from that film with a sort of fuck type feeling. Yeah, it, it was harrowing. Absolutely yeah, still, harrowing. Still technically MacGuffins, still technically MacGuffins raising the stakes. It's just they've raised the stakes and made us wait a year for the next film. <laughs> bastards um you can also uh have a macguffin um now this is a very popular one which makes the characters travel so for instance it might be they have to transport a child or another relatively agentless character again it can be an object take take these secret documents to you know so and so um or again it's not really a macguffin but we kind of we we've acknowledged that there are some um you know it's a choosy magical object but take the ring to mordor kind of thing uh where basically it it's there because it needs to be its purpose is to be transported and therefore yeah. it gives you know the character the it's reason get, for their journey it, it's to get it's them to out get of the house on the road yeah <laughs> yeah um so for example the princess in conan the destroyer she supposed to be uh, some sort of sacred bloodline etc magical potential but she never actually does anything yeah um and if you're one of the people who finds the women in conan the barbarian type books and films a little bit lackluster then you're not alone but they were definitely not written really with a female audience in mind yeah um but it's, it's a classic princess in the tower type thing as well yeah i mean she exists in that tower to get the hero to start on his path yeah absolutely Yes, the princesses are sometimes MacGuffins. <laughs> yeah, it sucks, guys, but, you know, 
people are taking that trope and turning it on its head. Think Shrek. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then, you know, as we've said, sometimes it starts as a MacGuffin, so you take this ring, um, but then becomes a plot device or a um, cheesy magical object that only works in the chosen one's hands. Uh, dragon eggs in Game of Thrones is a good example of this. That's I, I love that one, though, because that's kind of like, oh, here, it's a wedding gift. And you you sort of notice it because they're they're beautiful and they're dragon eggs, etc. Um, but up until that point, there hasn't been a lot of actual magic magic in Game of Thrones. No. Um, and then the last episode, it sort of crams all the magic in. She sort of walks into the fire with the dragon eggs and comes out with three live dragons. So, um, yeah. So, yeah, definitely technically a sort of MacGuffin type thing because they're valuable and people like them. They're pretty. Mm. Um, and then three dragons. Three dragons which are again still kind of MacGuffins right up until they're really not. They really are plot devices. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, so there's lots of ways that MacGuffins can be used and for great success as well. A MacGuffin isn't actually a bad thing. A MacGuffin can be very, very successful. Um and can make for a very interesting story. So even if the MacGuffin itself isn't necessarily that interesting. I mean, that's the thing. It's like, oh, we've got these documents. We've got to get... You never really sort of... It's not like at the end of the film, they're like, right, we're going to sit down and take you through each of the documents. They tend to give you, you know, the footnotes <laughs> of what the documents are and what they, you know... <laughs> yeah. Their importance. But... Um, even if the MacGuffin itself isn't that interesting on its own, um, it it's a significant part of the plot because it's something that everyone is after. It's like the centre point in some ways. Um, yeah, I mean... Sorry, carry on. No, 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 go on, go on. I was going to say, think the Da Vinci Code, whereby the MacGuffin is actually a secret that certain factions want to keep buried and other factions want to reveal to a specific person to guard, to be a guardian of that secret. Yeah, absolutely. So MacGuffins can actually be very cool. Yeah, definitely. So, okay, so when we're saying neither MacGuffins nor plot devices are bad in and of themselves, they can mm -hmm. absolutely be done badly, but that's generally bad writing or bad planning or bad structuring. Yeah, because All three. anything can be done badly. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, you'd think it would be impossible to write an entire story that revolves around something that is essentially useless, non-existent, or nothing. Mm. Um, but that's only true if your world building and character interactions are rubbish. If your world building and character interactions are strong and layered and nuanced, detailed, and you care about them, no one is probably even going to notice that the MacGuffin's kind of an empty bag. Yeah. Absolutely. Story um, is king, people. Story is king. <laughs> story is ruler of them all. So, yeah, essentially, don't believe the sneering tones some people use to say MacGuffin or plot device. It's like, oh, it's, oh, look at that convenient MacGuffin and plot device. Yeah, every story ever. Um, both have their <laughs> uses, as do, you know, choosy magical objects. Um, and ultimately, if the story you weave around these things is good, that's that's the thing that's going to be important. As I said, you can have a MacGuffin itself. Again, let's let's say, all right, our MacGuffin is a child. The MacGuffin is a child. If we just watched the child, you know, the the baby just sort of gurgling, that be might be fine for a few seconds. 
you know, maybe even a few minutes of, of content there. If it was just the entire film, which was just centered on the baby's face the entire time, it'd, be, it'd become very, very boring, particularly if they're, you know, just in a car or something like that. Um, don't leave babies in cars. Uh, <laughs> unaccompanied, please. Uh, <laughs> in a well-ventilated room. Um but, you know, you can then have your character who says, oh, but I've really, I've got to get my child back or I, I want to keep my child because, you know, the government um, or, or child services say that I'm not fit to be a parent because I'm a single father or something like that and they want to take my child away. Um, you know, the child is a MacGuffin, but you can still have an emotional connection to it. It can still be believably emotional, even if the child themselves isn't the most interesting thing. Their place within the story is interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, let's look at some of our personal favourite MacGuffin's plot devices, um, even choosy magical objects. Yeah. And maybe some examples in our own work. I'm now racking my brains because I have not prepared this bit at all. Can I use a MacGuffin? I'm not sure. I'm sure I use plot devices. So um, this is going to be on the fly from me. Just warning you guys. <laughs> not going to lie, it's going to be on the fly for me. I think also the thing is that a really successful MacGuffin is going to be one that you don't actually have, you haven't recognised as a MacGuffin. So you I don't think we're letting away. ourselves down as authors here, aren't we? Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, MacGuffin can be anything. And it, it, it can be matter. You won't notice. It's like you might not notice if you're writing it. Yeah, if you might. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, a stupid MacGuffin for me mm-hmm. is the money in um, The King's Knight in Revolt. Because <laughs> that money literally does nothing. In the end, it doesn't even really get Gregory his domain back. Um, it's just there to drive him to to London to force to force him to chase after people and do things that he doesn't want to do. Yeah, if 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 it literally weren't for that, there there well there would never be any. If he needed the money, so there'd never be any Eleanor. If he didn't, you know, it it does it drive it drives the whole plot. Um, but itself is is not that important, other than Gregory worrying about it every now and again. Well, sort of almost constantly. It's like, yes. like okay. I, I don't actually want to give the king £300, which, by the way, is like hundreds of thousands in today's money. Yeah. Um, but I need to do it. in order. I, I just need it settled. You know when you've got something to do and you can't do it and it's something really, really important and things just keep getting in the way? <laughs> that sort of stress. <laughs> exactly. That anxiety. Yeah. No, I think that's a that's a, a fairly good one. Um, in Kestrel Saga, we do have a MacGuffin in the form of uh, Clarent, the sword. Uh, though it sort of sort of becomes a little bit of a of a choosy magical object, it starts off as a MacGuffin, I think. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's fair. Yeah. Um. <laughs> I'm trying to. I'm trying to think. This is awful. I've, I've literally. I'm just finishing the ninth Harker and Blackthorn book, and I'm kind of like, do, do I have a MacGuffin in any of them? Um, I've got things that crop up. I think I've got objects that start off as MacGuffins. Yeah. Particularly MacGuffins where it's kind of like, yes, we must keep this out of um, Evergreen's hands, for example. It's yeah. not a spoiler to say that the major antagonists are Evergreen technology. Um, but I think later on they reveal themselves to not actually be MacGuffins at all. Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, yeah, so, as we've said, you can start something and start out as a MacGuffin or start out with something else and become a MacGuffin, so... Yeah. Yeah, totally. I don't... 
I'm trying to think if I've got a MacGuffin at all in the Unveiled series, an, an actual object or a person who really doesn't do much except. That I mean, if you think about it, it's kind of like the person who gets kidnapped or whatever in a, in urban fantasy is usually a MacGuffin. It's usually a MacGuffin, yeah. But I don't really have someone who gets kidnapped and doesn't have any agency. So. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you have you, you could potentially have MacGuffin moments, but they don't last very long. MacGuffin oh no, moments. I'm having a MacGuffin moment. I've lost all agency. It's like, why, why don't you get out the cellar yourself? No, I can't. You know, it, it's the thing. I'm intensely desired by both sides. Someone must come and claim me. That sounds really dicey. I'm not writing paranormal romance, I promise, but... But yeah, it's sort of along those lines. Um, so so yeah, I've got I've got a bit of a weakness. I like mystical, magical objects and weird things and stuff. Um, so yes, there's lots of them through Harker and Blackthorn. I've got bits and pieces in Unveiled. So for example, like the miniature coffins and things like that. Yeah. But generally, they've all got something really attached to them. And so even if they've got, as you say, MacGuffin moments, they're mm. not really MacGuffins. I'm clearly more of a plot devices type person thinking mm. about it. Yeah, yeah, I think I am as well. I mean, that being said, I do, I'm, I'm with you in that I actually kind of like the magical Magu- MacGuffin. Yeah. I like me the magical MacGuffin. I also kind of like the child MacGuffin. Not going to lie, in fiction, I kind of like the child MacGuffin. Uh, particularly if it's you know there's that a big emotional tie which is that you know that oh i've been straddled with a child now i've got to change my whole life because i've got a child or something like that and now although at that point it's a plot device it is a plot device yeah you're right it's that's definitely more of a plot device i mean one MacGuffin that i did like uh is actually from that old chestnut Inuyasha, the the old manga and anime, yeah, where you have the Shikon no Tama, um, which is this kind of it, it's this uh, it's this tiny little it, it's <laughs> like a marble. <laughs> it's more impressive than that. Um, it's it's a, this very powerful object, and what happens in sort of very early on um, is it gets first of all everyone's after it, which is why there was a priestess who was protecting it, um, and then her reincarnation, who lives in modern Japan, falls down a well um, and ends up in feudal Japan, where there are all these demons, and all of these demons are also after the Shikonotama. And when she's sort of trying to get it back, she accidentally shoots it and it breaks into pieces. So all these shards go flying off around the world. Not around the world, just around Japan, conveniently. <laughs> um, and so she has to team up with Inuyasha. And then, you know, they get this other group in order to collect these shards. Um, so to begin with each of the shards, it is very much a, a MacGuffin because the shards themselves, if an enemy gets hold of them, they become powerful, you know, a little bit more powerful. There's a little bit more of a threat there. So they sometimes face off against enemies who've who've gotten a shard and therefore are more powerful. But it's very much actually to do with the fact that the simple hunt for these shards is the thing which has brought these characters together and is sort of allowing their progression. And then as time goes on and sort of... They're no longer looking at shards. They're now, there are now sort of bigger things at play. Um, towards the end, it becomes more of a choosy magical um, artifact, choosy magical object. 
Um, but up until that point, it is very much a MacGuffin, and I'm I'm here for it. I just love the whole sort of well, we've got to go and do this, and that means we're going to slowly build our found family. And you know, I'm all about that. <laughs> yeah, it just made me think of the mirror in the Snow Queen. Mm, yeah, um, which you know they don't spend the entire plot gathering up the shards, but it's very much something that is that the fact that a shard gets into Kay's eye kind of. Um, means that Greta has to start this entire adventure to get him back in the first place. So you mean you could argue that he and the mirror are both kind of MacGuffins in their own right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, obviously, I've said about I really like the Rimbaldi artifacts. I kind of like the Da Vinci artifacts in Assassin's Creed Two as well mm. in, in the game. Um, just apparently, I just like slightly strange invented objects that may have an alchemical or mystical component to. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I'm uh, here for that. Yeah. Um, I actually have a MacGuffin in the latest book that I'm writing that I can't. I can't talk about it because it's too. It's. <laughs> I'll leave that to the side now. But uh, that was I'll, really I'll, disappointing. I'll, I'll, tell, I'll tell Jules about it later. Uh, no, it's 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 sort of a MacGuffin. Uh, I might as well sort of yeah go for a little bit. So um, this is a Kestrel saga book, and a mirror has cropped up, uh, which is it's. It's been found in in an old hill fort, so it's it's an incredibly old mirror, um, and uh, the mirror goes missing. Let's say that the Kestrel goes to investigate it to see. Oh, is this a magical object or is it just a really heckin' old mirror? Um, and before they can get their hands on the mirror, it disappears, and so, so they spend a fair amount of time looking for this mirror. So it is. It's a bit of a MacGuffin. Cool. Yeah. Um, fun stuff ahead. Jules is going to enjoy it. Yes, definitely. So there we go. Um, <laughs> in a roundabout way, some of our favourite MacGuffins, how we've used them. As I said, yeah, I think we're both more plot devices people, but we certainly have used MacGuffins. Yeah, I wouldn't turn my nose up at using a MacGuffin, I don't no, think. No, not I at think all. That- because this is a thing that I've only relatively recently sort of divided up into categories in my head anyway. And as I said, you know, both of us had to really think on the fly then, have we actually used them or not? <laughs> so, um, yeah, this is something that might be used more consciously in future at need. Mm, yeah, absolutely. But certainly it's not something to sneer at um, at all. As we've said, if it if it's been used badly, that's to do with the writing. That's not to do with the fact that MacGuffins are inherently bad at all. They're not. They're actually very useful, um, and they can make for really good storytelling. Yeah, definitely. Okay. So, um, what are your thoughts, guys? What do you guys think of MacGuffins? Do you agree with us? Do you disagree with us? What are some of your favourite MacGuffins? Let us know. We love hearing from you. Remember, you can get in touch with us via our Twitter, our Facebook, and our Tumblr, both individually or through the Dissecting Dragons pages. So please do get in touch. We'd love to hear what you think. Before we go, it is time for our Dissecting Dragons recommendation of the week. And Jules, you've got one for us today. Yes, um, I'm recommending Jupiter's Legacy, which is a series on Netflix at the moment. Now, we are living in the age of the superhero, in the sense of entertainment at least, Mm -hmm. and it is another one of those ones which, like Watchmen and Invincible and, you know, various other adaptations we've seen recently, is very much looking at the human part of being a superhuman. 
Yeah. This is an interesting look at family about shaping policies around being superpowered, about how that could cause a division in terms of um, not race, that's not, but in terms of who's superpowered and who isn't. Mm. It's really interesting. I think it's really well done. And it did something that I hadn't really seen in quite the same way, which is um, the issue of being superhuman and perhaps not wanting to be, not wanting to be part of that lifestyle and feel that you absolutely had to step in and be somebody's hero and wanting to walk away from it. Mm. Um, I think it's got a great backstory and some great mythology of its own which is attached to it. And it's got some really interesting, definitely very grey characters. Yeah. Fantastic. Okay, I'm definitely going to have to check that. Is that Netflix? That's Netflix, Fantastic. yeah. All right. And on that note, guys, we'll say thanks very much for listening and we'll catch you guys next week. Yeah. Thanks and goodbye. Bye. You've been listening to Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast. You can follow our podcast at podbean.com or from iTunes. For more information, visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash dissectingreaders. Or check out our author websites at jaironside.com and madelinevaughan.com. Please note, no dragons were harmed during the making of this podcast. <laughs>